Hi, Secreters. Welcome back. So, welcome, welcome to the new members and the new subscribers to The Secret Deciphered on YouTube. It is lovely to have you there, and I appreciate your feedback and the things that you guys um, give back to me as we go through this book study. That's The Secret by Byron Price and Ted Mann and Sean Kelly. So um, I want to just start off by saying that I am utterly, utterly grateful for all of you um, to be as kind as you have been and informative with me, sharing. Um, it's been a, uh, a wonderful experience to be able to share with you and methodically go through things and look for uh, a new meaning with fresh eyes, a fresh set of ideas with this book. So I see a lot of chatter um, on the forums, basically, you know, with the poem association. Justin, as we know, posted the really awesome press release yesterday uh, for when The Secret was published uh, back November 1st, 1982. And uh, there were some very interesting hints in that publishing, <clears throat> specifically the reference to 1726. So in this press release, you know, we have to think back into 1980s terms. So, you know, we'll put on our 80s glasses and be like, okay, what, uh, what did it feel like? What was the vibe? Everything was very uh, old school. You know, we had still kind of a lot of typewriter action going on. We had the beginnings of email at some form hitting the 2000s, right? And so we, uh, we have a lot to like sift through. But one of the things that really stuck out to me with this is why would he choose 1726 uh, to put in the press release, right? If it didn't have a meaning. So then we see, well, look back in history, we have the Great Awakening um, that's happening at that time in 1726 where, you know, we've been over here now, right? The colonists been over here for a while, got other subsects of immigrant groups coming over, and starting to set up shop and camp and trade with Native Americans and each other. And then starting to form their semi-subsects of governments. Now, we know that Ben Franklin, as we've talked about Ben, good old Ben, Philadelphia, 76, 76ers, spirit of 76. <laughs> All of this ties in to the framework of the beginnings of American society. And here we have these groups of people that are getting pretty put out with England and the way that England is wanting to strong arm them with taxes on everything from indigo and tobacco and molasses and rum and gin and just about everything. Um, without really giving a lot from the mother country for their sustenance. So, you know, these people, John Adams, 
Jefferson, Franklin, all of them. Kind of getting a little put out with England's crap, right? Like, you're going to sit here and tell us we have to follow this religious line. And we got to give you all this money and these goods. But yet, what are you doing for us, right? So, so then the great awakening happens as to going, you know what? We've been over here doing our own thing for a while now. And mother country over there couldn't care less for a while until it benefited them. So this is why it's important to understand the 1726 hint in that press release. Because that was really the forefounding of what was then going to become the United States of America. And so if that happened in Philadelphia, then is Philadelphia still on the table as a possible cask city, right? We got to think about that. We have to think about, now remember, 30 some plus years, Boston was presumed Philadelphia. It's a good possibility. We have a poem and or a painting that may not be properly aligned. Very good possibility. Very, very good possibility. Could be also a very good possibility. There are other cities that are misaligned with these poems as well. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the first six poems. Okay. And we're going to look at what writer Byron was referencing. Okay. Verse one, we had the, uh, the insertion of Pierre and the ambiguities. Okay. And so he used a quote from a Melville book, Melville's seventh book, sadly was a flop. Uh, about this Frenchman who came to America with his family, an aristocratic family, living in New York, and they were trying to take over the fur trade with the indigenous peoples of New York and doing everything possible to solidify their position uh, in the fur trade, even if that meant the slaughter of indigenous people. That's the book that Byron is referencing in verse one. How does that tie to paintings? How does that tie to the cities that we're questioning? Verse two is quoting Domingo Faustino Sarmiento. Sarmiento was Spanish, right? He was the uh, president of Argentina. He was a statesman. He was a person who when he came to America, to various cities in America, mind you, because he, he wrote his, uh, basically his journal, which was then um, translated and put into book form, which was this book here, Sarmiento's Travels in the United States in 1847. And he basically says in 1847, Wow, I came here to see, they've got this interesting um, 
kind of skeleton of government that they run and it all seems really good except for the slavery element because really they you know what i don't understand is all these people that had come here from europe and england specifically um they're still allowing the slavery thing to happen so essentially people in america are still treating slaves like people in britain treated peasants. So really they've kind of come across the pond, but that element hasn't changed. And hopefully one day it can, because he believed that slavery shouldn't be a part of any government equation. Okay. So again, verse two, I know people say verse two, that's New Orleans. Yeah, you know, it's the French painting, but here we're talking about a Hispanic governor slash president statesman of Argentina and what he's talking about with slavery in America and what he's witnessing, okay? And in that poem, the line gnomes admire, okay? A gnome is German. It is lowland German in fairy connection it's not french so gnomes are not french okay so we have to look at this and the fact that some people want to just disregard it for whatever reason they want to continue to follow the old ideologies of you know the quest for treasure forum that's you know several years old and not updated and there are no real writings about why this is even not talked about, okay? So remember, verse one, Pierre, verse two, Sarmiento. So we have French, we have Spanish. Verse three, we have Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's quoted in the last lines of the Boston Solve. His poem from Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. Interesting fun fact. Love Longfellow. Boston man at heart. Lived and died there. Not too far from where all this secret action was. Okay. So. And we also need to tie in here. Interestingly, we went from the first two verses or poems that quoted people, one of a different nationality, and uh, technically Pierre would be French, so a French nationality. Then we come to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and Byron changes up the scene. He uses a local writer for the area with what he felt was a very profound writing in Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, that it would make it easy for people to recognize, oh, that's Longfellow. Oh, let's look around Boston, right? And people were a little slow on the uptake. They didn't really get that. Then we go to verse four, the Cleveland find, where he says, Socrates, Pindar, Apelles, which we know you know, those were really early Greek philosophers and writers, right? Philosophers and writers. And when he says, 
the three of them, their names are telling that it's a Greek poem. And so good on Brian Zinn for being able to put all that together, right? Because you really have to think when Byron says, let's use our brains. <laughs> he's not saying go use somebody else's brain. Go look on Q4T and try to formulate your ideas from what you see there. He says, use your brain. That's the instruction. So then we go to verse five. And this one, you guys are going to say, Karen, there you go again. You're being this crazy Karen because don't you know that's Montreal or don't you know that's St. Louis? Well, let's talk about this for a minute. In the hint book, Byron specifically says that Lane is a proper noun. He also said that Twain was a proper noun. So he also said it's not splitting rope for Twain. So that would indicate he's talking about the writer, right? Mark Twain. So with Lane, then, he's talking about a writer. And that writer is Edward William Lane. Edward William Lane wrote a book called A Thousand and One Nights. And he infiltrated, he was from England, he moved to Arabia, he lived in Arabia for a couple of years journaling about Persian life. And he methodically wrote notes. He took his sister along. The sister had to go and live in the harems with the women because he would not be allowed to go into the harems um, to witness that life. So the portions of the book that are written about the harem living are written by his sister Sophia. And Sophia was told to act as though we're writing as though it was me, Edward, in these harems. So she really kind of didn't get the proper credit that was due for all the journaling that she did about living amongst these harems of women for these, you know, uh, aristocrats and the emperors and the like of high society Persia. Now, you're going to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Karen. Lane, that just, that, you know, that doesn't make sense. Well, does it? Because we already have every poem before it mentioning some writers, mentioning some authors, and fairly wide known authors, right? If I'm coming here from Japan, I'm going to figure out, and I know who Herman Melville is, because gosh, you know, I've read Moby Dick. I mean, you know, epic writer. I mean, we have Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who's, you know, pretty epic writer for American history, but also, you know, throwing in Sarmiento, who, if you were in 
South America is a person that you greatly admire for the time that he tried to develop a stable, respectful government. So then we get to Lane. And we go, what does that mean? Is Byron saying because Lane was an Englishman that we need to look at the English painting? Is Byron saying because Lane lived and wanted to immerse himself in the Arabic culture? And I'll post a picture of him too and you can Google him but you'll see. Um, is Byron telling us this is the Persian poem. We really have to think about that. We can't just disregard it. And this is where Byron really was very clever in how he wrote because he expected people to be literal in their deciphering. He expected this. This is why he said, write me your solves and I will look over it and you know if it's where you say it is I can mail you a key because he knew he would probably get tons and tons of letters right that he's then going to take and file away nicely in this file cabinet for the second version of the secret that he had planned to write. He wanted to take our knowledge and quote unquote fair people that we saw and be like, oh yeah, Byron, by the way, totally saw this Karen at the grocery store that was being so much like Amira Kamira, <laughs> right? And you're describing this person or the celebrity or whoever and you're telling Byron and Byron is getting to glean this information and feel like he's cultivating this fun little secret culture of making fun of the nasty people of society and or the good people of society, right? Uh, it's a fascinating concept. And it's unfortunate that it never got to the second level. Because had it gotten to the second level, he would have been able to talk a lot about his ideology and the way he saw this, this, this puzzle shake out. And he didn't get the opportunity because he was so clever he was so intelligent. He layered so many different options of solves that it led the reader into mass confusion. And he kind of purposefully wanted to do that, but he also thought, okay, I need them to not only be literal at times, but be logical at times. I need them to be thinking about 
certain visual clues. I need them to know certain literary clues. And this is where they mix and they intersect. This is what is missing, in my opinion, and why I started this group and this YouTube channel is to really think about the exact meaning of the words. If that means we need to look up the definition of split, like we did the other day, small split, and we think about small split could mean, you know, small crevice. It could also mean something with nuclear fusion, right? And we know Byron talks about nuclear or alludes to these nuclear events in the secret book. I mean, you don't mention a Geiger counter without implying something with a nuclear reactor, right? So, yes, when we talk about the fairy folk in the back of the book, absolutely there's clues, absolutely there's hints, absolutely there's ciphers there. And that's the element, right, that goes deeper that can spin you further down into that rabbit hole. And then Byron says, but you have to determine how far down you go. How much of it is going to be logical reasoning? How much is it how much of it is it going to be logical and literary knowledge? Right? And this is knowledge that we all hopefully can share openly in this forum and talk about things as wild as they may be because it could be something that somebody else needs for their piece of their solve. And that's okay, right? So we'll go to verse six and, and I'll get to that one and then we're gonna stop and then I'm gonna go through this other six verses in the next video. So, recap. Verse 1, Pierre, French. Verse 2, Sarmiento, Spanish. 3, Longfellow, American writer, epic, one of the father writers of American writing and, and, and literary history for America. We have the Greeks, Socrates, Pindar, Pelles, got those guys, which by the way, if you don't know, Pindar is also quoted in one of the verses as well. Dauntless and inconquerable was written in Pindar's Olympic Ode at one of the first Olympic Games. Gotta think about that. That ties in somewhere here too. So, verse 6, 
We have Louis Stevenson. Everybody says, oh, Karen, you know, he's talking completely about pirates. I mean, that's a pirate book. It's Treasure Island, blah, blah, blah. No, he's not. Not if you really read. The quote was taken from the foreword of the book. And if you don't know what he said, you need to. I found this book. Um, grateful for finding it because it's basically a complete and utter breakdown of the guy Louis talking about in that poem. And he's one of three, but he is utterly, utterly important. And this is why. I'm going to read you the poem because you need to hear it. Because we need to really think about what these poems say and what their true meaning is. To the hesitating purchaser, if sailor tales to sailor tunes, storm and adventure, heat and cold, if schooners, islands and maroons, and buccaneers and buried gold, and all the old romance retold, exactly in the ancient way, can please as me they pleased of old, the wiser youngsters of today. So be it, and fall on, if not, if studious youth no longer crave, his ancient appetites forgot, Kingston or Ballantine the Brave, or Cooper of the Wood and Wave. So be it, also, and may I and all my pirates share the grave where these and their creations lie. This was verses written by Robert Louis Stevenson, which appear at the front of the first edition of Treasure Island. And you say, oh yeah, Karen's talking about Treasure Island. Well, not really. This is talking about Kingston, Ballantine the Brave, and Cooper. James Fenimore Cooper. This is an ode to all of these writers who have written about such things that have inspired Louis to write the book. What do you know about them? What do you know about Ballantine the Brave? Make sure you can see that. Or James Fenimore Cooper. What do we know? Right? Well, we know Ballantyne was an Englishman. We know that he sailed for Hudson's Bay. Hudson's Bay Company used to come into New York. Um, who else sailed for Hudson's Bay? Anyone? Anyone know? Henry Hudson? Anyone? 
This leads us down a path of questioning what the quote actually means. What is it really referencing? Ballantyne wrote a book called Coral Island, which is based a lot, heavily, on what Stevenson wrote. Okay, Coral Island was about piracy and slavery in the South Pacific. Truly, one of the greatest kid youth writers of the day in the 1800s. Valentine wrote over, 18, over 800 books. And they were really geared towards young youth boys who were looking for a way to escape the rigid society of England. He was English, by the way. So, where does that lead us? Where does it lead you? In your search. Does it change the way you view the poems when you know the writers that he quoted and the material, the material's meaning? We can still hunt the same old hunt and we can still apply the same old terms and we can still probably be where we are or we could take a new look. And that's the goal with The Secret Deciphered. So if you like what you see and you like how that I break these things down and we discuss these things and I can give you a new fresh idea or thought or maybe rearrange some of your thinking, that's awesome, right? Lead you one step closer to a cask that maybe wasn't there before. So if you like what you see, subscribe to me. I'm going to put up a website. I'm getting um, an email. I'm getting a lot of people wanting to ask me questions. And, um, you know, I, I want to be able to be helpful to everyone. And, you know, AKA, ask Karen anything. So I'm going to get that uh, email up and running. And then I'll be able to pull all your questions together. And we will uh, go over them here and break them down. But no word should be left unturned. And that starts here. So have a wonderful week, guys. Happy hump day. See you next round. Very on.